Matthew chapter 14 this morning will be our text. So I invite you to turn there and uh, should be a Bible nearby you if you need one. Matthew 14. We have come now to the incredible account of Jesus' probably most well-known miracle, at least one of the most well-known, and that is the miraculous feeding of the 5,000. Matthew 14. Uh, this Actually, this miracle is recorded in all four Gospels, which just highlights its significance, its sort of central place in the story of Christ. Uh, the miracle is kind of representative of the pinnacle of Jesus' popularity among the crowds that came to hear Him. And so it's an important miracle for our understanding of the Lord on multiple different levels. And I want to expound those for you this morning. So let's read the text first from verse 13 to verse 21. Matthew 14. Now when Jesus heard this, that is, He heard about the imprisonment and the, um, the death of John the Baptist. When He heard this, He withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by Himself. And when the crowds heard it, that is, they heard that Jesus has gone away, they followed Him on foot from the towns. When He went ashore, He saw a great crowd, and He had compassion on them, and He healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to Him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is over now, over. Uh, send the crowds away into the villages and buy food for themselves. Jesus said, they need not go away, you give them something to eat. They said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. And he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. This is a, uh, just an amazing story um, set in the middle of the wilderness. Let's look, think about the setting of the story first because I think there's something important here, the background for what's going on. Remember that Jesus uh, had, had heard about the death of John the Baptist and he left where he was ministering in the crowded towns on the northern shores of the sea to go off into a more desolated, uninhabited part of the region there. Perhaps he went there because he could get out of the jurisdiction of King Herod, um, who had had, the one who had had John the Baptist put to death, right? And remember that John that Herod thought that maybe Jesus was John the Baptist raised to life, and that's uh, why he was able to do all these miracles. He's a voice from beyond the grave. And so they, uh, the king, Herod, was a little bit 
um, uh, interested but nervous also about the this person, and so it's very possible that he would have sought to put Jesus to death. Not that Jesus feared for his life. Remember that he said, no one takes my life from me, I lay it down of my own accord. So he's not fearful, but he was very concerned that he live out God's plan for his earthly life, including the very timing of when he was to lay down his life. Remember, several times he said, my hour has not yet come. So he went away um, to be in control of this whole situation. But I think more importantly than that, he went away to these less inhabited places of the region so that he and his disciples could just have a time of rest. I mean, they have been ministering... um, almost non-stop. And as you put the Gospels together, you know, in kind of a, uh, a comprehensive way, you begin to see a picture of frenetic activity. These guys are going and going and going and they're ministering. In fact, I think it's Mark's Gospel that, that says um, that they didn't even have time to eat. And so Jesus said, you guys need to come away. Let's get away from the crowds for a while. And of course, the Lord Himself wanted time uh, to, to rest. He was a He was fully human, let's not forget that, right? He wanted time to rest, uh, to to be able to eat, but even more importantly for him to just be able to spend some time alone with his father. In fact, if you look down in verses 22 and 23, you see that that's the very next thing that he's doing is once this whole scene is finally over with, he goes away up into the mountains and he spends time with the Lord. So... You know, I don't know how it is for you. I'm I'm sure most of you have had this sort of situation where you have been doing what God has given you to do and you've been busy about that and God has given you a lot to do or a lot of ministry on your plate at that point. He's given you just, you know, children to to serve and and they're making life very, very busy uh, and, and you just, you're going and going and going, doing what God wants you to do and, uh, and at the end of it, you're just wiped out. You're just exhausted. You're kind of peopled out and you're ready to just get away and just have some quiet time and just get, you know, get, just have rest. Well, that's the way uh, Jesus and his disciples are. And so in order to get away for a bit, they get in a boat. They go kind of across the sea, uh, the lake there, and they end up probably somewhere on the northeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, but once they get out of the boat, what do they find? What's waiting for them? The crowds, more people. The people that apparently seen him get in the boat or heard about them getting in the boat, and they said, hey, let's follow him. So off they went on foot around the sea, and by the time they got there, uh, there were more people waiting. And, you know, of course, you can understand, right? These people are hurting. They, they have loved ones. I mean, the medicine in those days was a whole lot different than ours. And and they have many loved ones with, uh, you know, with many physical ailments. And they're bringing, they, they, the miracle worker is so close. And, and they just want to see their loved one, you know, be able to see again after 10 years. Or be able to walk again. Uh, or to be able to, to hear the sounds of the birds singing, you know. And so they, they bring all their people. They, they, they start following him. And he gets out of the boat. And lo and behold, <laughs> there's all the crowds again. And I don't know what to say. (laughs) 
you know, maybe you'd, you'd get out of the boat. Uh, I'd get out of the boat and I'd, maybe you'd think, <laughs> how can I do this? I mean, I'm just, I'm going and going and going and going and I haven't even had time to eat. I'm, I'm weary. I don't haven't had time to rest and I don't want to mess with these people. Send them away. Let's deal with them tomorrow. But, you know, ministry to people doesn't always come at convenient times for you. It, didn't, it certainly didn't for the Lord, but rather than shirk that opportunity to pull back from that, He pushed into it. And He began, it says in verse 14, to have compassion on them and to heal their sick. In spite of his weariness, when he sees people, he is moved with compassion. And I tell you today that he is still moved with compassion on those who have great need. Brothers and sisters, listen, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. If you have a burden on your heart, if you've come today weak, or sick, or hurting, or in pain, or concerned about some big situation, you know this, you came to the place where there is the one who stands before you who is full of compassion beyond anything that you've ever met and anybody that you've ever known. Run to Jesus, my friend. Run to the Lord. He is moved with compassion when He sees these needs. And so he, uh, he spent all day, you know, preaching, teaching, and of course, healing the people there on the side of the sea. And on the day went. You can just imagine all of the different people and he's having conversations with them. You know, we read some conversations in the Bible when he healed people. Just imagine some of the conversations that happened. Some of the people who were truly converted during those hours that he spent with them on the sea. Of course, many people who were helped physically. And, uh, and it gets late, you know. All day goes on and there are just more and more people. Now it's, you know, it's afternoon. It's getting later in the afternoon and the guys are, you know, who are probably still haven't eaten yet. And uh, they're also thinking of the crowds. And finally, at the middle of the day, they say, Lord, you know, they're hungry. It's been a long day. Let's call it a day. Send them home. Send them at least out to the, the nearby towns and let them you know, go buy some food and they can have something to eat. And at that point, at that point, Jesus gives what I, what I found to be a very astonishing command. You look at it and you see if you might think the same. Look at what, look at what Jesus tells these guys. It's in verse 16. He says, they do not need to go away. They need not go away. What does he tell them to do? You guys, give the crowds something to eat. Now, we have to jump ahead a little bit. We know that there's a big crowd, right? Thousands of people. And these 12 apostles. And Jesus looks at them and he says, I want you to feed the crowd. And you can just imagine... I mean, I, what their response might have been, open-mouthed, staring at him, and then looking out at the crowds, and looking back to Jesus, <laughs> and they say, we have five little pita breads 
five little loaves and a couple fish somebody found somewhere, and you want us to feed the, the crowds. One of them says, hey, if we had 200 denarii, we couldn't, there wouldn't be enough to go into the towns and, and buy all these people some food. I mean, look at the people. What do you mean, feed the people? It just, it seems so strange. Jesus didn't say, okay, don't worry, I'm going to do something about this. He said, I want you to feed the people. And, and I, that struck me as so, such an astonishing thing. I think it highlights two really important truths about the way that Christ works. And one is that His commands demonstrate our inability. Jesus commands, God's commands for us, highlight our own inability. You know, there are times when we think if God gives us a command, then we must in and of ourselves be able to do it, right? But that's not the way God works. He commands us to do things which are absolutely our responsibility, but we find that so often because of our limitations and especially because of our sinfulness that His commands manifest the fact that we don't have the ability in ourselves. So how in the world are they supposed to obey? Christ's command demonstrated their need. And it's a picture, really, of what is profoundly true for us, all of us, on a spiritual level, right? Think about the commands of God to us on a spiritual level. Jesus has just given us one of the most astounding commandments in all the Bible just a few chapters back, the end of Matthew chapter 5. Remember at the end of the or in the middle of this Sermon on the Mount, he says, Be therefore perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. How do you take that command? Well, you say, well, maybe we need to reinterpret what perfect means. You know, maybe, maybe he doesn't like me be perfect, perfect. Maybe he means, you know, try your best. Well, all right. So if he, if he just means what he says, what does that command do but highlight our own inability? Or how about this one? Try this one on. Command, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. How do we fare with that one? Raise your hand. Yes, I've done that. <laughs> right? You're not raising your hands. The commands of the Lord often deal with us in a way that do manifest our own inability. And just think through all of the commands of the, even the commands of the scripture in other places. Do not fear. Love your neighbor as yourself. Let not an idle word come out of your mouth. Forgive like you have been forgiven. Do good even to those people who hate you and do bad things to you. Never worry. Do good to everyone. And of course, then you are reminded that whoever keeps one part of the law, but he breaks another, he's guilty of 
Of what? Of all of it. And so we begin to see that God commands what really is for us impossible in order to stop us dead in our tracks. And that's exactly what this command does for these guys. You know, here they're busy serving, serving, going, going, you know, helping facilitate all that's happening. And God gives them, Jesus gives them a command and just stops them in their tracks. And they begin to recognize their inability. And what Jesus does when he gives us commands in the word like that is he manifests not only our inability, but in such a way as to cause us, to compel us to run to Christ, who's the only one who has the ability to do these things. Martin Luther, the great reformer, finally came to realize this after years and years of hopelessly trying to please God in his own strength and he would work hard to be the best monk that he could possibly be and he felt misery that he was such a failure and he he was never able to to do enough to what he felt was to, to please God and always had this sense that that he was unable to to be everything that God rightly commands us to be. And he he said, he finally realized that, and and he, he wrote these words. He says, "It does it follow from the words, turn ye, turn to the Lord, which is a command, right? Does it follow from turn ye, that therefore ye can turn? Does it follow from love the Lord thy God with all thy heart that thou can, that, that, that therefore you can love the Lord with all your heart? The imperatives or the commands, he says, signified not what we can do, but what we ought to do and what is required of us so that our impotence may be made known to us. There's something that the Lord intends by giving these commands and that is to meet us in our brokenness and manifest it to us, to show us that we're broken. One of the great purposes of the law of God is to demonstrate how far short we fall of what we ought to be. God's commands, whether it's the command to repentance and faith or the commands to love and devotion to God or service for the Lord, All of these commands drive us to confess our utter inability apart from Him. You remember that on another occasion, Jesus sent out His disciples to to do miracles and to uh, preach the gospel and to heal people and cast out demons. And at one point, they, they, they just failed. They couldn't cast out this demon. And they came back to the Lord and 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 it was made known to the Lord that they couldn't do this thing that God, that Christ sent them out to do. And they said, Lord, why could we not do it? And he says to them, this demon will not go out except you spend much time in what? Prayer. In other words, part of why he sent them to the really hard cases was to demonstrate that the power wasn't really in them at all. The power was outside of them. It was their responsibility, and yet they lacked the ability to do it. Don't think that those those can't go together. Because part of giving the command is to drive us to the source 
of the ability and so to find Him at work through us. All of our inabilities ought to move us to cry out to God in earnest, Lord, I need You. Help me. So Christ's commands demonstrate our inability. And secondly, from this, I think we see that Christ commands us to do actually what He intends to do through us. Wasn't that the case with the disciples? He said, go feed the people. It was His intent to feed the people. But He was going to do it through them. Though it is our responsibility, it is God's doing. Right? Does that make sense? Though it's our responsibility, it was the disciples' responsibility to do this, it was God's doing. And in that that way, we are drawn to God in communion with God to see Him do His work in the world. Christ doesn't work independently of us. He chooses to work through us. And He says to the disciples, bring me the five loaves, bring me the two fish. And of course, God often does take what we have and use it, though it is nothing in itself. Remember how Elijah says to the widow uh, in the Old Testament, a widow woman and her son, she has just enough uh, oil and and flour to make a couple little cakes, a couple little loaves of bread and share a last meal with her son. It's a time of famine and they're just going to have their last meal and then just waste away. And remember his command? It's an interesting command. He says, I want you to make me a meal. I mean, which is, you know, typically that's expected. This is the man of God. He's coming through your village. You show hospitality. But, you know, these people have nothing. And he says, make me a meal. But he says, make me a meal what? First. And he said, then make something for yourself and your son. And she's like, what kind of command is this? I don't have, do you not see how much I have? Do you not see the condition we're in? It's a command to do the impossible because God really intends to take what we have, which is nothing, and to work through us and to multiply and to do an amazing thing that glorifies Himself. God has a way of multiplying what we have if we will just humbly give it to Him. So the Lord says to the disciples, okay, you give them something to eat. And the disciples would indeed feed the multitude. If you ask the multitude, you know, who fed you? Of course, Jesus fed them. But it was the disciples that carried the bread, that distributed the bread, that handed them the bread, that collected the leftovers, but only because the Almighty Son of God was at work through them. So God says to us, listen, work out your own salvation because what? Because it's God who's at work in you. And through you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. You're responsible. You work. But it's the work of God. Can you do the work apart from God? No, you are unable. And yet you are responsible. 
in order to drive you to God again and again and again through the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you, you know, perhaps there's something right now that God's given you to do. Some service to perform, some sin to overcome. And you say in your heart, I can't, it's just too big. This is an insurmountable obstacle. It is beyond me. And the answer is, that's true. But God intends to work through you according to His mighty power. So cry out to Him. Go ahead and confess your inability. And then get up and obey. And do what is impossible. Brothers and sisters, get up and obey and just do what is impossible for you. Because when Christ commands something, He intends to accomplish it through those for whom it is impossible. And that brings us to the miracle itself, which is one of the most astounding. Jesus has them sit all, down all on the grass, this huge crowd of people. And, uh, other Gospels tell us that they sort of organized them into groups, you know, 50s and 100s, and how they ended up knowing how many. They had 5,000 men, it says, and we assume there probably were women and children as well. So you're talking about thousands of people, most likely. And Jesus took the loaves from the disciples and He blessed them and He broke them and He gave them to the disciples and then they entered, walked out through the, the crowds and to the various groups and passed them out. And It's you know, kind of difficult to know exactly when the miracle happened or how it happened. Was it when Jesus was breaking the bread? Did He just keep breaking and breaking and breaking and breaking? Or, or did He give them each a certain amount and then as they passed it out, it just somehow it kept being more and more? You know, we're not even told all of, the, all of the details of the miracle. All we know is that you can't read it any other way than, than that it's a miracle because Matthew says, first of all, he says all of them ate, all these thousands of people ate, and everyone ate, until they were full, verse 20, or satisfied, which is uh, a term that can even be used of fattening animals, right? So these people are, you know, they're not getting a little tiny wafer like we get at the Lord's Supper sometimes. I mean, they're, they're eating, they're, they're having a meal, they're getting full, they're being satisfied, and then, to top it all off, just so you know it's a miracle, they collect 12 baskets, basketfuls, sizes of, of of leftovers of bread and fish from the crowd, far more than they ever started with. So, how do you read that any other way than to say this is a a miracle uh, that the Lord Himself does? Now, that brings me to this then. The implications of this account. And there are applications of this story, I think for us, on three different levels. And the most obvious is this, that we need never to be anxious about what we will eat or drink for our daily needs. Amen? If we serve a Savior who can do that, why do you worry about things when you worship the God who can feed thousands with five loaves and two fish? 
He will say to his disciples in just a couple of chapters, Oh, you of little faith. Why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not yet remember the five loaves or the, for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Friend, why are we anxious? We're like a man standing in front of Niagara Falls and wondering where we're going to get a drink of water. Our Savior is more than sufficient to meet every single need we have. And yet, we find ourselves of little faith, worrying, anxious, perplexed. Brothers and sisters, look up. Look up. See the Savior. Is your God not able to do everything? Is He not a good Father who takes care of His children? Is He not wise beyond all measure to give you exactly what you need, exactly when you need it? Amen? All right, I'm taking that as an affirmation of your faith now. That's why you've come to have your faith encouraged. Why do we worry? God delights in taking the insufficient and using it to accomplish His mighty purposes. But I think there's something else going on here too, on maybe a little bit deeper level. And that is that this miracle tells us something significant about who Jesus is. Because no doubt, as Brother Jim mentioned earlier, for Jews who were steeped in the Old Testament, This conjured up remembrance of some Old Testament accounts. Um, There's a couple of them probably that would have sprung to mind. There's an account in 2 Kings chapter 4 of Elisha, the prophet. Remember the successor to Elijah. And Elisha uh, had a situation where he was given 20 um, loaves of bread. So not five, but 20. And he had a hundred men to have to feed. And so he tells his servant, take these loaves and feed our men. And the servant, like the disciples, say, what do you mean? A hundred guys with five? Everybody's going to have barely a mouthful. What are you talking about? Feed everybody with this. But they fed everybody, and at the end, they had leftovers. You can see all of that preparing the way for now someone who would come as the greatest prophet of all, not feeding a hundred with twenty loaves, but feeding thousands with five little loaves and two little fish. But, but maybe even more significantly, I think their minds would have gone back to uh, the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, namely the great leader Moses. And Moses, of course provided food for the people of Israel all through their wilderness journeyings. Remember, when they escaped from Egypt before they got into the Promised Land, they wandered all through the Sinai Desert, and there God provided for them again and again and again and again. 
also in a place of wilderness, just like this one was. And that, no doubt, the people began to make these connections. In fact, of course, John makes it explicit that that, uh, they came to Jesus uh, and uh, were seeking Him to be uh, a prophet like Moses. Moses brought food down from heaven, right? Both bread and meat, just like Jesus provides for these people. And John records that the next day after this happened, um, the feeding of the 5,000 here, the next day the people came back to Jesus. And they said, hey, Moses fed them again and again. You do the same. They were looking for another miracle. And Jesus looks at them and he says, listen, you are missing the whole point. They came to be fed but they did not put their trust in Him as the Son of God. For him, for them, He was a mere miracle worker who would give them what they wanted. Jesus looks at them and He says, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. You eat this bread and you'll live for a day. But you partake of Christ and you will live into the ages to come. You seek Jesus Christ for temporal needs and you may save your life but lose your eternal soul. What you really need, listen, what I really need is Jesus Christ Himself. Do we just run to Jesus whenever we... uh, We want Him to do something for us. Whenever we have a need, a problem, help, I have a need. He meets the need and then we're we're off. What we really need, brothers, sisters, listen, what we really need more than anything else is Jesus Himself. He's the bread of life. He's the one who gives life. Your life is more than what you eat and what you drink and what you put on. Your life, life, let that word have its full meaning. Life is more than just stuff. Life is Christ. Christ is life. You need Christ. You don't need more food. You need Christ. You don't need a bigger paycheck. You need Christ. You don't need all of your 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 needs met exactly in the way you think they ought to be met and the timing that you think they ought to be met in. What you need more than anything else, what I need more than anything else is Jesus Christ. The Old Testament wasn't about Moses, it wasn't about manna, it wasn't about quail, it was about Jesus. Jesus said, don't miss the point. And I think there is a third sort of layer of significance to this miracle as Matthew has recorded it. And this is perhaps the deepest layer of of significance of all, it's not apparent to the crowds, and I don't even think it's apparent to the disciples yet. Though looking back on it one day, the significance would be clear. And you can see it in the wording that Matthew uses to record the event in verse 19. That's a key verse, so take your, um, draw your attention back to verse 19 in the text. And look at the wording that Matthew uses. 
He records it carefully that Jesus, taking the five loaves and the two fish, He looked up to heaven and said a blessing, and then He broke the loaves and He gave them to His disciples. There are four actions here. He took, He blessed, He broke, and He gave. Now, does that sound familiar? Okay. This is not random verbiage or insignificant language. In fact, the other Gospels record the same wording here. And it ought to sound familiar to us as we look back on it from the light of the rest of the New Testament. Let me refresh your thinking. Matthew chapter 26, you don't have to turn to these. Jesus is sitting down with His disciples. Matthew 26, it is the last... Supper, right? What we call the Lord's Supper. And listen to the wording. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew writes, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, He broke it, and He gave it to His disciples and said, Take, eat, this is My body. Mark chapter 14, verse 22, He took the bread, and after blessing it, He broke it, and He gave it to them. Luke chapter 22, verse 19, He took the bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it, and He gave it to them. Paul in 1 Corinthians, talking about this, says essentially the same thing. The Lord Jesus, He says, took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it, and He said, Take, eat, this is My body which is for you. These are the very same four actions that open the eyes of the disciples on the road to Emmaus. You remember that story? After Jesus rose from the dead and Jesus walked with them, they didn't recognize who He was and they went into the house, they sat down for a meal and the Bible says when He was at table with them, He took the bread and He blessed it and He broke it and He gave it to them and their eyes were opened and they recognized Him. So no doubt then that Jesus' disciples, remembering back to the feeding of the 5,000, recognized in it the precursor of the Holy Supper, the Lord's Supper that we still partake of today. The Lord's Supper that points us to what we really need, which is the true bread that comes down from heaven, Jesus Himself. The Lord's Supper, and even this feat, looking back on it, it reminds us of how Jesus took His life. He took it up. How He gave His body to be broken. How He consecrated it to God. And then how He gave it Himself to us for our salvation. So that we may not partake of just a single meal, but to enjoy communion with the Almighty God forever and ever and ever for all eternity. And Jesus Himself said that's what the supper does. It causes us to look forward to the day when communion with Christ will be eternal and unbroken. Jesus says, I will not eat this anymore until I eat it with you in the kingdom. 
We may look forward to the day when we will commune with the Lord in His kingdom in eternal, unbroken communion, unbroken by sin, unbroken by death, communion with God, unbroken by by distance, by coldness of heart. Will you be there that day? Listen, Jesus said, the only people who will be in my kingdom, the only people who have an eternal life are those who eat the bread that I give them. Now, there were those 5,000 people and he's giving them bread like Moses gave them manna. But Jesus says, all of this is points to me. I'm the bread. You have me and you have life. I want to ask you this morning, do you have Jesus? Is Jesus a part of you? Are you, you is, is He united to you and you united to Him by faith? That's what's pictured by the eating of the bread. We're exercising our faith in the Lord Jesus, receiving the gift that He gives through His own broken body and His shed blood. Have you ever gotten on your knees and said, Lord, I know I'm a sinner and I need the Lord Jesus Christ because He was good. You have commanded me to be perfect like you are perfect, and yet I'm far from it. But I'm looking outside of myself to one who was perfect and in every way pleased you. I want to be united to him. I want that living bread that I may live forever in your presence. Lord God, save me for Jesus' sake. Jesus is the bread of life. This is about him. And it is to point us to that communion that we may have with Him, memorialized in the supper that we eat, the Holy Supper, but but looking forward to that day of eternal communion with Him in heaven. Oh, that we may learn not to be awed simply by Christ's material provisions, but to be in awe of Christ Himself, the bread of life. So... You know, whatever impossible situation you're facing, whatever overwhelming need that's in front of you, run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. He's all your hope. He's the one in whom is all might and power and authority and dominion, who is able where we are utterly unable. Our Heavenly Father, we need our Lord Jesus. He is the miracle-working Son of God, the only one able to do for us what we are required to do. We pray that You would awaken our hearts to Him in a saving way and continually awaken our hearts to Him in a more profound way as we grow in Christ. Lord, please work in the hearts of Your people now. Encourage them. Lift our eyes to the Savior, we pray in His name. Amen.